KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Dr. Ben Berger of Swarthmore College is an expert in political science, and since the past few years have been rife with political turmoil, we've spoken with him a lot. Several of those conversations focused on the January 6th investigation. I was skeptical, let's say, of the Watergate comparisons that a lot of people were making, but things have gotten a lot more Watergate-ish, and that includes the prospect of at least some people uh, doing jail time. And those episodes were kind of the impetus for a discussion about whether we are doing enough to keep powerful people accountable in this country. So it's not just on one side of the aisle that that has happened. Congress has been very unwilling to have have itself policed. And because they're the ones who often would be passing the legislation to have it happen, it hasn't happened. Since then, people have been sentenced to jail time in connection with January 6th, and even former President Donald Trump is facing several charges and multiple trials. Does that mean we've been doing better, or are we still lacking accountability where it really counts? So there's a race against time to try to get some of these cases decided before the election, and most legal experts think it's going to, think it's going to be very, very difficult. I'm Matt Leon, and today on KYW News Radio In Depth, we bring back Dr. Berger, who is an associate professor of political science at Swarthmore and executive director of the Lang Center for Civic and Social Responsibility, to discuss whether these cases are making progress towards a change, where else we should be looking for more accountability, and how it affects public trust when politicians get away with even smaller bad behaviors. So, you and I had a conversation mid-spring, late April, early May. Here we're talking five, six months later. And how do you feel like we are seeing accountability for for high-level people on multiple fronts? I'll put that as a maybe, as a a maybe qualified yes. Until I see actually uh, justice happen and, and consequences occur, it's always difficult for me to believe because just of the track record in this country, it's always been very difficult. It's not just a recent thing. It's always been really difficult uh, to hold the powerful accountable. And we know how important it is if we just look at history. Other countries besides ours have gotten in big trouble historically for not adhering to rule of law and for letting top people get out of things. Matt, I, you know, I teach political science, but also political philosophy. And just these last couple of weeks, I've been teaching an honor seminar. We've been reading Machiavelli. And even Machiavelli, people think uh, Nicola Machiavelli, okay, the author of The Prince, this is somebody who surely doesn't care about ethics and politics at all. But in his large book, The Discourses, he insists that it's really important, and this happened in Rome, that even the very powerful be held accountable if they violate the law. That's a very bad example for everybody else if they're not held accountable. And when Machiavelli tells you that something is important for political ethics, it really holds some weight because it's not exactly, you know, the the, um, Boy Scout who's telling you that. So we know it's true, and yet we have difficulty following through on it. And it seems to be the case increasingly that 40% of the country, and I don't just mean on left or right, any 40%, is going to be against having their side held accountable. And that's really difficult, too. That wasn't always the case. And we need to improve on that. One of the things, and I think, obviously, you know, with Donald Trump facing, you know, more than 90 felony counts and four different trials, you know, that's where it starts. But that's just kind of one aspect for me, because you look around at a lot of people, specifically in this case, we're looking at January 6th, who we're not the the headline names. People maybe that don't follow politics wouldn't know. But if you kind of read into this stuff, we're not particularly trying to hide it. 
and going on TV shows and going on podcasts and talking about what they did and how it was it was fine. Um, and a lot of those are the people that now I feel like you're starting to see get swatted down. Uh, you know, John Eastman, the lawyer facing disbarment, facing charges in Georgia, Peter Navarro, contempt of Congress was found guilty and contempt of Congress. I know a lot of people. Oh, big deal. I think it's important because if it's law, then it needs to be upheld. Like, what's the point of this if we're not going to utilize these things and hold people accountable for them? And I feel like we're starting to see that. You're absolutely right. And we saw Peter uh, Peter Navarro. We've seen him on TV. We've seen him on MSNBC uh, and Ari Gelber. And that's a left-leaning show. He'll go on and talk to people he might perceive as adversaries and has been proud of what he's done. So it would be galling if nothing at all happened to him. And you're right. He, he is now convicted on contempt along with Steve Bannon. I also think it's the case that if we really did a statistical analysis of the number of people and the number of things that were done. It's a very, very small uh, percentage that are being uh, prosecuted now and convicted. So it's heartening to see what's there. But I think if we actually looked at the larger picture, we'd see far more things escaping justice than than being caught in the web. The thing that's interesting and unknown to all of us right now is whether people like Bannon and Navarro, whether it will stop with the contempt of Congress charge, which we've heard that Navarro faces, it's up to, I think, a year in prison and a $100,000 fine, but Bannon got four months in prison and $6,500, I believe, fine. And that's suspended while he's, it's on hold while he's going to appeal, which is much less than he could have gotten. And so Navarro could got, get much less too. But what's unknown to us is whether there's still going to be some kind of prosecution out there for them for the much larger role they played in devising what they've called the Green Bay Sweep, an attempt to kind of do an end run around the Constitution and, and get Trump to stay in power in spite of the actual election results. We don't know that. If they don't get held accountable for that, well, then that's when I would say contempt of Congress seems like very small potatoes compared to what they did. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see if they wind up being on the hook for more. One of the things that I feel we have learned in the last 10, 15 years is just how powerful a political weapon a lack of shame is. Kind of one of the basis of our original conversation was the idea that there are not a lot of mechanisms in a lot of these places to deal with bad behavior. It is if the person doesn't resign or step down, then it's kind of a what do we do if we can't make them? And I I think we see this on the Democratic side now with the New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez, who is for the second time facing a boatload of felony counts. And, you know, this latest these latest allegations, I think I saw described one place almost cartoonish, you know, with gold bars and money sewn in a in a suit. And he, as we're recording this on September 27th, he's been defiant that he's not going to resign. I mean, have we changed where shame doesn't have the effect or is it society? Like it just, it's fascinating to me because we'll talk a little bit about Watergate. I, you know, I think in today's climate, a lot of the people in Watergate, including Richard Nixon, might've just put their head down and tried to plow through. You're right. Yes, you're right. And look, and George Santos on the right and Menendez then on the left or the Democrat and Republican, we can't necessarily align them with right and left, but on the Republican and Democrat side, we have those two examples come immediately to mind, each refusing to resign, even though confronted with a seemingly just outrageous trove of things that they have done wrong, and there's nothing in place to make them um, resign. I think that's one of the things 
we've talked about in a, in a previous show that we did together where sometimes you only have rules made after the fact, just like the Information Act. So after Watergate, we've now passed laws that that um, make it illegal for the president to hold on to papers because the president's papers, starting with Reagan, are owned by the people and they can't retain things. So Trump modeling himself after Nick, uh, you know, Nixon, his family was compensated something like $18 million by the government for the papers of his that were taken. Right. So Trump had made some gestures at some earlier point a couple, a couple of years ago about, well, maybe he should get money eventually for um, for the papers that he had. But the difference is there was a law passed after Nixon that made it illegal for a president to take those things. So it's maybe the case that after all of this, Congress will see, well, maybe we need to put something into place to make people resign or hold them accountable. The difficulty, of course, is that it's Congress who will be putting that rule in place and they don't usually like to make rules that restrict themselves. It's one thing to make rules that restrict a president. That's just checks and balances. But making rules that restrict themselves, that's something a little bit different again. So it's discouraging to see those folks not have to not get held accountable. Of course, the biggest person we might think about with sort of lack of shame is, of course, Donald Trump in this. He doesn't seem to care. And, and I want to make clear there are some people who love Trump for that. And that's their prerogative. They can. I don't mean to indict everybody who is a Trump fan in this, but we do think it's pretty clear he has no shame. One difference between him and Richard Nixon was that Nixon didn't have to resign right when he did. He could have pushed things a little further. He could have seen if he might be able to get someone to recant what they were saying. He resigned before he got impeached. They had been drafted the articles, but he hadn't actually been impeached yet. He respected. He understood that what was going to happen he saw that it was the will. He'd lost the kind of will of the people as well as Congress, and he resigned before he had to do. That's unthinkable right now. So it's difficult. It's a, it's a weird thing to be holding up Richard Nixon as someone who actually had a sense of shame and propriety, but comparatively, he may have had more than Donald Trump, and that's that's saying something. You have to anticipate bad actors and you know people not playing by the rules and stuff like that. It, it just seems to me it's amazing that we don't have by now pretty steadfast rules at every level everywhere that, you know, if this happens, you have to step aside and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, is it just a, you think it's a lack of imagination or kind of back to your point, Congress doesn't want to police itself. You know, you're asking the people that have the power to say that they have to give up the power and that's never going to happen. Yeah. So it's difficult to get uh, folks to police themselves, but also it's the case that I think even the general public, if the question were put to them, might be wary about putting in too stringent of restrictions because we've all seen there can be politicized prosecutions. There, and it's often the case that those of us, if we like the person in question, so fans of Bill Clinton might have thought, well, all right, so the person lied about an affair with Monica Lewinsky. But is that really rise? The, does that affect his ability to do his job? I like the policies he's going to put out there. Okay, I don't think he should be impeached and convicted for that. Whereas people on the other side were saying, this is crazy. The person lied uh, under oath and therefore can't be president. And there have been examples of that kind of thing on both sides. So what we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to be able to help, have one of our people held accountable if we deem it to be something that doesn't actually affect their ability to do their job, if we deem it as something that's ancillary to that, are we still willing for them to be held accountable? I think the answer ought to be yes. I think they're actually, in retrospect, Democrats ought to think that it might have been a mistake not to push further on the Clinton issues because it empowered, emboldened Trump afterwards. And maybe we would have set an example that people would have been afraid of, but we didn't. And so 
part of, I think, the responsibility lies with us. we got to look in the mirror and say, are we willing to have even our favorites uh, brought up on charges and kicked out if we don't think the charges are actually rise to the level of whatever, but the other side does think the charges rise to that level. What do you think are the ramifications for the public at large when you see this type of stuff in politics over and over and over again? And it might, the names are different, the parties are different, the how is different, but it's all kind of a violation of the public trust. Like it seems to me the last 50 years, it's just been this consistent downward slope in people's trust in institutions and and belief in the process and stuff like that. Just talk a little bit about how, you know, a lot of these things, just the, the consistency of them and the effect they have on on the public. Absolutely. We saw a significant decline in voting and an engagement after Watergate. You might think there would be an increase because people will be vigilant. We need really need to watch then those in Washington, but it didn't happen. There was a there was a disengagement and uh, rates went down, even though now young people were able to vote. You know, uh, suddenly 18 year olds were able to vote and yet you know, voting went down. And that's really tied to the public's kind of malaise at there being so much corruption around them. And it's apparently corruption on both sides. So if we think that it's important to have a vigilant and engaged citizenry, it's really damaging to have this kind of behavior that makes people just turn off because they think, what can we do? Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to be done. The difficulty too is this. There have been times in which, let's take, for example, the Democrats have said, we are going to be the party of greater responsibility. We're going to set an example. And we will do things like step down if there's enough of, a, of an uproar. Al Franken, a senator from Minnesota, comes to mind. He was surrounded by Democrats who said, look, there are some allegations against you. You need to do the right thing and step down. And people are going to see us then as the right kind of party doing the right kind of thing. Well, today, Al Franken probably wouldn't have stepped down. Lots of other people wouldn't have. He probably would still be in office today had he not done that. It seems like a lot of it, lot of it blew over. And it's not as if the, de- the Democrats got a big boost then in public relations and in in voter trust from having done that. Some people might think he was just, you know, sort of foolish. So when the payoff is uncertain on the politi- on the party side to try to keep their noses clean because they're not really going to win more admiration and when all the bad deeds simply get people to sort of turn off all the more, it's really not clear exactly what what the right path is. One thing that is clear is these do have an effect on public sentiment and on voter and citizen engagement. It happened in Watergate happening again now and that's a a significant long-term cost to the country. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Ben Berger right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. And we are back on KYW News Radio In-Depth, continuing our conversation with Swarthmore College's Dr. Ben Berger. When we look at specifically what is happening in the Donald Trump circle, I think so much of it, we do have the knee-jerk reaction to Watergate because I think it's the only thing we kind of have a, it's our only frame of reference for something like this, where you kind of have a collection of people being charged or, or connected to, you know, untoward behavior. What can we learn about what happened to people in Watergate that happened to now. Because one of the things that I found interesting, and once again, one of the original reasons I wanted to talk to you was like, within a year, dozens of people, high-ranking people in the Nixon administration had been charged, tried, and convicted. And two years out of January 6th, very few, you know, outside of people that went into the Capitol had even been charged. Like, 
what can we glean from Watergate to kind of understand now? Well, one thing, of course, about Watergate was there's a physical burglary. And, and that's an obvious crime. That's not even something people would call like a white collar crime or people sit up and take notice when there's something like property crime or a crime against, you know, uh, violence against individuals. So one thing is there's an actual burglary. Of course, it's the cover up that's in many ways bigger than the burglary itself. That's what really gets uh, Nixon ultimately impeached or not quite impeached, but it would have been impeached had he not resigned. So we have a burglary, which one thing, and a smoking gun. We have a smoking gun to which are, the, which are the Nixon tapes. And that's not something we've had quite so obviously yet. Now, there are a lot of people point to various things as possible smoking guns. The taped conversation with Raffensperger, Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, right? That's a taped conversation. And yet it still could be argued, well, Donald Trump wasn't really telling him you must go and invent or create 11,000 plus votes. You could argue one way or the what are the, the Nixon tapes were the Nixon tapes. There was a lot of damning information on there. So one thing we learned is the importance of a smoking gun, but also the importance of someone flipping because we wouldn't have had the Nixon tapes without John Dean flipping. So Dean, if we just go over the, the, the these like a central cast of characters, you got John Dean, who is the White House counsel after John Ehrlichman. Ehrlichman Haldeman and Ehrlichman are these sort of famous or infamous twosome who are sometimes were referred to back then as the Berlin Wall because they were two of Nixon's inside people who surrounded him as a wall and kept out everyone else. And people called them the Berlin Wall because their names sounded German. They thought that was funny. But Haldeman is his, Nixon's chief of staff. So he's kind of like Mark Meadows in that same role. And Ehrlichman is an attorney. He's the White House counsel for a year. And then he becomes chief domestic advisor and, and really Nixon's main handler. And then you got John Dean. And he becomes White House counsel after Ehrlichman. So which one of them is like Rudy Giuliani? I would say more like John Ehrlichman, I would say, is more like Giuliani. But there's no real parallel because Giuliani wasn't the actual White House counsel. And John Dean perceives correctly at a certain point that he's going to be played for a patsy. And that's when he decides he's going to cooperate. He, he, he's in a conversation, supposedly, with Nixon in his office. And Nixon says some stuff that's kind of incriminating, but he says it very quietly. And he kind of whispers it over in one corner of the room. And Dean thinks to himself, wait a second, what's going on? I, I think there might be tapes going on. Maybe he didn't want that taped. And then he goes and cooperates and actually testifies and says, says, I think you ought to look for some tapes. Then there's a smoking gun. Without Dean's testimony, again, maybe it's the case that Nixon, Nixon never resigns. So that's one important thing. Is somebody going to be the next John Dean? Is Mark Meadows going to flip? He's indicated that he might be turning against Trump in the Georgia RICO case because he said that, well, it actually, it, it wasn't I. I was doing what I was directed to by the guy on top. And the three fake electors, they said more or less the same thing. We were just, we're just doing what we were told by, by Trump's lawyers. And if everybody points the finger enough at Trump is that, it's nearly not the same thing as finding Nixon tapes. So there still remains the question, is somebody going to flip? That's absolutely what the prosecution strategy is, to try to try all these folks together to get enough folks to turn on Trump so that they have enough evidence to actually get Trump. That's what they care about, of course. They don't really care about all the other folks involved. You or I might care about other folks who who really did stuff like access to voting machines after complaining about in, uh, alleged voting fraud and imaging those voting machines and pressuring um, voting workers to try to change their testimonies with, with, with threats. All those things are bad, and we might hope those people get prosecuted, but surely who the prosecutors care about is Donald Trump. And the question then with Watergate is, you know, 
is there going to be a John Dean to come forward? Now, Haldeman and Ehrlichman both did prison time and Nixon had a chance to pardon them right before, you know, he resigned and he declined. Now, Ehrlichman was pretty bitter about that. And he subsequently wrote a book where he pinned a lot of the blame on Nixon and said Nixon knew everything from the beginning. He was one of the architects. So that also kind of shows you what if you don't take care of your own? Trump hasn't always taken care of his own. We've seen Cohen go and turn on Trump for also not really taking care of him, too. Will Giuliani do that if he feels he's not being taken care of? So those are questions that loom from history. Of course, we talked about in a different podcast that Mark Twain said that history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. And I made the claim that really it's not even rhyming. It's more like half rhyming or slant rhyming, like in hip hop or poetry. And that makes it more difficult because you can't really tell what the next word is going to be by what the previous word was in a half rhyme or slant rhyme. And that's the case here. Right? There's a lot of similarities to Watergate, but there are differences too. And just because John Dean went and flipped uh, because he thought it was going to be a path, he doesn't mean that somebody else is going to do that now. But that's one of the things we're going to be watching for. One of the things that we touched on before and uh, an area where I don't think there's been accountability is with the Supreme Court. We have seen multiple stories come out, runs of stories come out about billionaires gifting specifically it seems like clarence thomas and to a lesser extent maybe sam alito uh trips and things like that and then they come before these people have interest before the court and lo and behold they it seems to go in their direction the only movement i would see that you would think that all of these stories have made a dent is you know i know clarence thomas amended some documents of of gifts he received and stuff like that but once again what was the one line? I think it was Sam Alito said, if I didn't, that, that seat on that private plane was going to be empty if I didn't go. So I don't see what the big deal with me going is like there. It's really like kind of jaw dropping stuff and the, the amounts of money we're talking about. And when you're talking about the highest court of the land and it should be noted, a court that has really, really shifted some longstanding policies in the last couple of years. Uh, it That's incredibly concerning. It is. And we know that in the spring, uh, all nine justices declined to adopt the judicial ethics code. And this was after we had heard this this news about, you know, uh, Clarence Thomas and, and lots of others who had done sort of these like Alito with questionable things. So all nine, this is the difficulty of getting a body to be able to police itself with the people who are currently on it doing the policing. It'd be one thing if you you look to retired justices, maybe, or something like that, who did the who were authorized to make the to make the policing. But those who are in power, you know, this is a something that goes back to the beginnings really of, of constitutional law and constitutional theory. John Locke says a version of this, but so does Aristotle much longer than back in ancient Greece, that, that people are bad judges in their own case. And that's why we have rule of law, because you need something outside of the person. You know, we, we, we make psychological justifications that support what, what is in our interests. And it doesn't mean we're bad people. Everyone does it to a certain extent. But you oughtn't to trust those people who are in the position at the time to do that policing. And yet there's nobody else authorized to do it. Uh, and that's disturbing. You know, it's also the case that the justice has said that they don't really need to be have a, an ethics code because they can seek counsel from other people, including other judges. But the question is, I think, as maybe Brad Pitt says in the movie Fight Club, how's that working out for you? Right? It's not working out that well. So if that's not doing it for us, you can't really be, well, well tell us that you don't need the uh, ethics code. 
because my kids could tell me they don't need a bedtime, you know, and they, from their perspective, they don't my perspective, they do. And in this particular case, I don't mean to infantilize them. The Supreme Court justices is just the rest of the country here needs to be the adults. But there's nothing in place to make that happen. Because I think it is bonkers that there's like a federal law, federal court code of ethics for federal judges. But somehow we didn't put that with the Supreme Court. Like, I, I, I just think that's crazy town that the the we had these nine people appointed for life all this power and nowhere along the line did anybody say, you know what, this could become a problem if we don't rein this in a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there are, there has been scholarship. Uh, Robert Dahl years ago wrote a piece on Supreme Court justices and among other things said that they've got to worry about public perception. This has been a line that's been echoed. They're, the, they're what Hamilton called the least dangerous branch because they don't have the purse or the sword, meaning Congress and especially the House has got the, the purse and the executive branch is the sword and, and and the Supreme Court is just judgment and they're just kind of wisdom. But we've seen that they've got quite a lot of power and they can undo laws. They can really legislate from the bench. And so that argument about the least dangerous branch doesn't really hold that much water any longer. But the received wisdom was is the court would only go so far because they needed to worry about public opinion, because if the public really started to view this as illegitimate, well, that would hurt their standing. And yet it's not really clear how that's true. The public seems to be against the abortion decision in large measure. And yet the court did what they did. And they've got they've signaled no kind of return to any other kind of policy. So I think your concern is really well placed. And it's the sort of thing where this is the sort of thing, right, where you might say we need a constitutional amendment. We need a convention, something like that. But that has been shown to be almost impossible. You've got lots of states who wouldn't agree to get together for a, for a constitutional convention. And you need a, a bunch of the states to be able to sign on to that. And there's also worry about what if we had a new constitutional convention, we might put things in place that none of us likes at all. So let's just stick with what we got. Very, very difficult to amend the constitution, especially on something like this. So all of our main options seem to be you know, out of luck. And that's, it's difficult for me as a political scientist to have to be saying to folks that, well, you know, we, I kind of don't know, but right now we don't know what can be done and that's disturbing. Given all that we've talked about in the last 25, 30 minutes or so, you know, about the alarming lack of shame and the alarming behavior, but also people trying to move to hold people accountable. Are you optimistic, pessimistic, or to be determined about the body politic going forward? You said optimistic or pessimistic. I'll just pick the last syllable a little sick. I'm a little sick. That's what I am. Um, I don't think there's great reason to be super optimistic. I'm optimistic, you know, that something's going to happen, that some folks will be held accountable and that Donald Trump could be as well. However, it's because it's so very possible that Trump could wind up winning re-election. Very possible looking at the polls and the directions everything is going in. He wouldn't be able to pardon those involved in in a Georgia case. You know, we know that because it's not it's a it's a state case. It's exactly why RICO is being applied there and not in the federal courts, because the pardon doesn't work there. But who knows what kind of things he could do as president to try to circumvent charges that are being brought against him. And so there's a race against time to try to get some of these cases decided before the election. And most legal experts think it's going to think it's going to be very, very difficult. So I'm optimistic in the sense that hope springs eternal. And and I say this really not as a Democrat versus Republican, but as someone like you, who I think is we express this from the beginning, somebody who's concerned about the republic, 
concerned about the Constitution, concerned about the ability to hold everybody accountable if they need to be held accountable, and concerned not to have a significant portion of the population just check out and say politics doesn't really concern us because it's not, nothing's ever going to change. So I'm optimistic that there's going to be some movement. Somebody's going to be convicted of something. Whether I think it's going to change anything very significant in terms of a possible Trump administration or Trump himself facing you know, real charges, much less so. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.